The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome back a guest who I had the pleasure of interviewing in 2013, Mr. William Marler. He is an accomplished attorney and national expert in food safety. Mr. Marler has become the most prominent foodborne illness lawyer in America and a major force in food policy in the U.S. and around the world. The Marler Clark Food Safety Law Firm has represented thousands of individuals in claims against food companies whose contaminated products have caused life-altering injury and death. He began litigating foodborne illness cases in 1993 when he represented Brian Kiner, the most seriously injured survivor of the historic jack-in-the-box E. coli 0157H7 outbreak in her landmark $15.6 million settlement with the company. Mr. Marler's advocacy for a safer food supply includes petitioning the USDA to better regulate pathogenic E. coli, working with nonprofit food safety and foodborne illness victims organizations, and helping spur the passage of the 2010-2011 FDA Food Safety Modernization Act. His work has led to invitations to address local, national, and international gatherings on food safety, including testimony before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Energy and Commerce. So we last spoke in 2013 about the 93 jack-in-the-box case and what has happened in those 10 years and preventing foodborne illness in general. And today what I'd like to do, Mr. Marler, is welcome you to talk about the Chipotle case, the national Mexican chain restaurant that has been served with a federal subpoena as part of a criminal investigation linking it to a norovirus outbreak that occurred last August in California, the chain has also had six foodborne illness outbreaks in six months. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a long introduction, but really what I want to get to today is what is going on with Chipotle? Well, in some respects, I think that the broader question is what's going on in food safety. And I've always used the description of food safety and combating these pathogens is a lot like the Dutch boy sticking your finger in the dike. You know, you stop the leak somewhere and then it pops out somewhere else. And I look at the reasons for that as, as two. One is the bacteria that are, their job it is, is to make us sick. And they move on an evolutionary scale so much quicker than we do. They morph and change over time to conditions that help them make us sicker faster. So that's one thing we have to deal with is how do you stay ahead of something that's evolving so much quicker than you are. And the other thing that happens is that unless some outbreak is right in front of you and and you're looking at it that, you know, it's the lettuce or the cantaloupe or the peanut butter, people tend to pay attention to something for a short period of time and then they forget about it. So those two problems, I guess, the way I look at it, are always going on in the background. 
So when you're having a problem like Chipotle is having, those two factors are two of the things that really come into play. But I think overarching what's happened with Chipotle is they frankly took their eye off the food safety ball because they were so focused on the other things that they view as even more important, which is being organic, being local, being non-GMO, being sustainable, being animal-friendly. And those become proxies for food safety, but it doesn't necessarily make your food safer. Right. So norovirus was the first incident. Tell me a little bit about that particular organism. And it's one of the most common sources for foodborne illness. If anybody's interested in investigating these different causes of foodborne illness, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a wonderful website for this. But I was really interested to see just how common this particular virus is. So it is the most common cause of acute gastroenteritis in the U.S. Each year it causes 19 to 21 million illnesses. It contributes to 56,000 to 71,000 hospitalizations and 570 to 800 deaths. Wow. Do we know the source of the norovirus at Chipotle? It's, it's us. Norovirus is a human virus. Its only reservoir is humans. And you see it more often in the winter months than the summer months because we tend to congregate inside in the winter months. That's why you see a lot of norovirus outbreaks on cruise ships. Right. Um, and, in fact, there have been some frightening recent developments of norovirus becoming much more virulent. So, again, getting back to the bugs morphing over time, viruses can do the same thing. And restaurant setting in the, in the two norovirus outbreaks that Chipotle has experienced, one in California at Simi Valley and the other in Boston, mostly uh, attacking Boston college students, clearly linked to an ill food worker who came to work when they were ill and didn't follow proper hand-washing procedures. So, you know, here the idea is that even though Chipotle had an exclusion policy for ill workers and, in fact, had a sick leave policy, paid sick leave, workers felt they needed to come to work, and then there wasn't proper hand-washing. So that's how these outbreaks can tend to spread. They've also had an outbreak with E. coli, has that been traced? Well, they've actually had three outbreaks linked to E. coli. The first was in July of this last year in Seattle. It was a small outbreak, E. coli 0157, and it was in one Seattle restaurant, and actually public health didn't announce it until the next E. coli outbreak happened, the E. coli 026 outbreak, was talked about, and then that has spread across the United States. Now 53 people sick, and all of these outbreaks have never officially been linked to a particular food item. And most of the time in foodborne illness outbreaks, you may know where the outbreak happened, but it sometimes is difficult to figure out exactly what the food item it was that made you sick, what component part of the burrito was it that made people sick. So they have yet to figure that part out. So was the lettuce sampled, for example? Were the tomatoes sampled? 
Usually there is some sort of traceback system put into place. Correct. In this instance, the products that they tested all came back negative, but they were also perishable products, so the product they were testing was not the product that people consume. Interesting. Uh, by the by, the time they were testing the products, the people had gotten sick two weeks earlier, so the product they were testing was not the products that people were obviously consuming. I think the difficulty in a – and we've seen lots of foodborne illness outbreaks that are not ever figured out in restaurant settings is that especially in sort of Mexican-style food restaurant cases, all of the component parts – tend to be in all the items. So you'll have basically the same items in a taco that you have in a burrito as you have in a burrito bowl. Right. And so there's, it's hard to, say, tease out, you know, what product that one person didn't eat who didn't get sick. Right. And so it's not so unusual for, at the end of the day, to say, well, we know the outbreak happened at Chipotle, but we're not sure what the product was. Right. Now, I am assuming that large restaurant chains have models of food safety practice. I'm thinking specifically of HACCP, the Hazardous Analysis Critical Control Points, where anybody that goes to work at one of these large-scale restaurant chains has to go through this training. Did Chipotle skip some steps or not train their employees (laughs) adequately? Well, part of it is a lot of this is still being investigated. But if you look at, for example, the outbreak at Simi Valley, the the, uh, norovirus outbreak, and you look at the documents from the public health department, it's pretty clear that basic procedures of hand washing and, and hot and cold temperatures for food items and using personal objects like a cell phone in, in a kitchen area, a lot of things like that were not being followed very well. You can have a HACCP plan. It can be the best HACCP plan ever. Right. But everybody's got to follow it in order for it to work properly. And so I think that looking at the Chipotle thing sort of overall and having six outbreaks in six months, I think, frankly, that Chipotle was focused on the wrong stuff. They were focused on potentially laudable goals of sustainability and organic and all that. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing or that's not what caused the outbreak. But I think it took their eye off the ball as using those buzzwords as proxy for food safety. And hopefully this multiple outbreak scenario and their stock price going down by 40 plus percent is a wake-up call to them and others in the fast food industry to up their game. Yeah. Personally, I really liked the fact that Chipotle was such a large nationwide chain Mm -hmm. that spoke about things that mattered to me, such Mm -hmm. as they didn't want to buy meat, say, from an animal that had a horrid existence, say, in a CAFO. They wanted, in fact, I I had a a farmer friend who sold them black beans. So they Mm -hmm. were supporting our regional Mm -hmm. economic development. Mm -hmm. And so it's too bad that this restaurant couldn't succeed doing both. I'm hoping that they will be able to turn around. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not they can come back? Uh, Yeah, they certainly have gotten 
a lot of people, maybe in the mass food production industry, have sort of been gloating over their bad luck. Yes. And I think that that's wrong. And I don't think that Chipotle has to get rid of their slogan, food with integrity, but I think they just need to change it a little bit. It's safe food with integrity. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. In fact, it's not mutually exclusive. And I think that they were taking a moral high ground previously that also had positive marketing experiences for people. And my two college-age daughters ate at one of the Chipotles here in Seattle that was linked to two of the E. coli outbreaks. And so, you know, this that hits kind of close to home because my kids uh, were certainly kids who paid attention to food safety. I think it would have been a very bad thing if Chipotle would have poisoned my girls. But the reality is, is I think they can come back from this. I mean, there are a lot of restaurant chains and a lot of manufacturers who have had as worse of a problem and have rebounded. So I think that Chipotle at least what they're telling us that they're going to start doing is a good thing. And it's just a matter of, I think, them needing to be transparent enough with the public to make sure that we ultimately know that they're doing those things. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. William Marler. He is an accomplished attorney and national expert in food safety, and he has become the most prominent foodborne illness lawyer in America and a major force in food safety in the U.S. and around the world. I am a big follower, Mr. Marler, of both your blog, which is the marlerblog.com, if anybody wants to join me in following this story, as well as Food Safety News. You have probably the most informative and entertaining websites or blogs on food safety, that, and I've been a loyal fan for many years. But I really liked the blog that you published, I think this was on December 26th, actually, and this was 12 Steps to Food Safety. You title it 12 Steps to Recovery. <laughs> Very clever. But I really appreciate the way you worded this about, just as you mentioned, food safety with integrity, and recognizing the fact that it doesn't matter whether you have organic food, conventional food, local food, food that travels all over the country, food safety problems or foodborne illness can happen anywhere, anytime. It's just that when we've got these global chains, you just have more people sick. Correct. So, so we have They're to- likely to get caught. That's The thing about foodborne illnesses is that we know that most foodborne illnesses are never figured out. Yeah. And so we know that they happen likely in all different forms, in local agriculture, you know, mass-produced agriculture. However, only the big outbreaks that are across state lines tend to get noticed primarily because there's enough people to get sick that, frankly, public health and then the media notices it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, a foodborne illness can happen uh, anytime. It can happen in your home if, for example, you you wash your turkey in your kitchen sink and it splatters Campylobacter and Salmonella onto your countertop and then, you know, you put the bread down to uh, cut it and 
the salmonella or campylobacter gets on the bread and then you eat it because you don't cook it and lo and behold you get a pathogenic dinner. So, I mean, you know, it can happen anywhere. It just takes a, a lot of times, it just takes a little bit of extra care to protect yourself and your family. Exactly. Also on your blog, you spoke about certain foods that you would never eat. And that that really piggybacks on your last comment, which is it can happen anywhere, but there are certain foods that put us at greater risk. And I know that you spoke about this in 2013, but I feel like these six food items really need to be identified again. So can we go through those? Sure. sure. Great. Okay. So I'm with you with regard to raw milk and unpasteurized juices. We know that there have been many outbreaks related to those. Do you want to add any comments about that? Well, it's all about, in a sense, it's all about risk, and it's all about how much risk people want to take. All sorts of food items, for the most part, if you're a otherwise healthy adult, your body's immune system may be tough enough or that the bacteria may be less plentiful enough that you're not going to get sick. The big risk comes with children uh, and the elderly and pregnant women. Those are the risk groups that have to be much more careful about the food they consume. And from my perspective, people who believe in the benefits of raw milk or raw juices, if they're an otherwise healthy, happy adult, you know, I sort of say, even though I wouldn't do it, you know, I think people have the right to sort of make those decisions. But when it comes to a child and, you know, and I've seen, you know, unfortunately I've seen some really horribly injured children who have consumed raw milk or raw juices that have E. coli in it and they wind up brain injured needing a kidney transplant, unable to walk, and to me it's not worth the risk. And so I think the items that I list, raw milk, sprouts, those are food items that have a tendency to make people feel like they're healthy, but the risks, in my view, you know, far outweigh the benefits. Yeah, I agree. And if we had a situation where we had people testing the raw milk at the farm before it was bottled, you knew that it was handled well. Same thing with the juices. If there was some way for those products to be inspected so you knew that they were not contaminated, that would be great. But on a large-scale distribution system, I don't know how we can do that. I agree with you. Okay, raw sprouts, those have been in the news for a long time, and I'm with you there, too. Yeah, I think that... The number. I was just actually talking to somebody today about, uh, you know, one of the one of the larger uh, foodborne illness uh, outbreaks that occurred in the world was, you know, a sprout outbreak in Germany um, four or five years ago. It was linked to uh, sprouted fenugreek seeds from Egypt. Over a thousand people developed acute kidney failure, and there were, I think, nearly almost a hundred deaths. It was a horrible, horrible outbreak, and uh, it was an E. coli 014, which is a fairly rare form of pathogenic bacteria, but, you know, sprout outbreaks crop up quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, of course, the meat that isn't well done, and this is such this is such a challenging topic because, on the one hand, 
certainly ground meat should be cooked well done because of the way the meat is processed, and so you can get bacteria from the outside on the inside. But you brought up something, and that is steak that's been tenderized with knives. It also does the same thing, where you introduce bacteria from the outside into the inside. So you right. order your steak well done as well. I do, yeah, and, and that's uh, in part it's just perhaps a bit mental for me, but it's many steaks in many restaurants are needle tenderized, and there's no regulation to disclose that. And so a lot of people are having their steaks rare or medium rare, and that's not sufficient. Uh, that temperature is not sufficient to kill the bacteria that may have been introduced to the center of the meat because of that needle tenderization. Right. So, again, it's one of those sort of things where if you're playing the game of risk analysis, it's frankly better to, you know, up the temperature of your steak, uh, especially if you don't know for sure whether it was needle tenderized or not. Right. Pre-washed or pre-cut fruits and vegetables, why do you avoid those? You know, I, I think we as consumers have to be, in many respects, responsible. And I wrote a blog post once, you know, is, is uh, convenience worth the risk? And, you know, what I meant by that is, you know, following a 2006 spinach outbreak, it was linked to... 205 illnesses, five deaths, and the, it was finally traced back to a farm, a 20-acre farm uh, in the Salinas Valley. And what we learned was is that the, there was intrusion in that field of some wild pigs, but it, it didn't, not all of the spinach in that field was contaminated. It was contaminated in a part here or a part there. But when it was all cut simultaneously and put in bins and then washed and bagged and shipped across the U.S., the wet animal manure was in a one section of the field was spread out amongst all of the lettuce, all of the spinach. And so, you know, when I think about reducing my risk profile, instead of buying bunched or bagged salad or bagged spinach, I'll just buy a bunch and wash it myself. Right. And same with cut up apples. I'd rather wash the apple myself and cut it up myself and because it's frankly it reduces the risk. And the more things that are times they're they're handled by other people or shipped in long distances, the more increased risk there is of a bacterial or viral contamination. Exactly. You know, I think that the move towards greater sustainability and with all of the climate change talks, I would like, I would hope that there would be less of this importing of lettuce from California to all parts of the country. I mean, I realize that that's where California gets a lot of their economic development, but we should not be importing water from California, essentially that's what lettuce is, to the Middle and East Coast. Right. Well, you know, I mean, you remember that time where, you know, you'd go to a grocery store and go to a grocery store in the middle of the winter and you wouldn't be able to buy certain things because they weren't in season. Exactly. Now, every time you go to a grocery store, everything's in season. 
because they're flying things in from South America. Exactly. Yeah. Quite the carbon, bad carbon footprint. Bad carbon footprint. It's not only is convenience worth the risk, is is it worth the risk to eat outside of the season? I think that's part of the conversation. And you know what's really interesting? I remember when the bad salads were pulled and the Mm -hmm. and the, the spinach. And I kept thinking, is anybody doing full cost accounting in terms of how much energy, you know, the cost of the labor, the water, all of the inputs, not to mention carting or hauling these foods across country. And then many times people had to bring them back to a central location and then have them taken somewhere else, more fuel, to have them thrown away or disposed of. Has anybody done the math on these recalls? Boy, you know, I think that would be a fascinating economic analysis. I think it would be great. But I'm not aware of anyone who's done it. Exactly. All right, let's get back to this list because you've got two more on here that I think are important. And these are raw or undercooked eggs. And we've all heard about the salmonella epidemics that are associated with undercooked eggs. But you think it's still a problem? Um, it's less of a problem today than it was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but we still see those outbreaks occurring. There have been some new rules called the egg rule that has been applied, but it's going to take some time to get salmonella you know, out of our egg supply. Mm-hmm. And the last would be the raw oysters and other raw shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think raw shellfish is going to be a victim of global warming. Yes. And I say that primarily because we've started to see more and more and more uh, beach closures, even here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle and north, because the warming water allows for more bacterial growth and you know, frankly, the job of much of these bivalves is to filter the water, and that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Well, we used to have this little saying where you could eat oysters raw if they were in season. So oysters are in season. So you could eat them during months that were colder. So exactly mm-hmm. to your point where you're going to see exactly. more of this bacteria and viruses too. Okay, we've got two minutes left, so I want to leave the floor open to you. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know? Well, you know, I think it's not all doom and gloom. You know, we have gotten a little bit better, and I think over time we're going to get better. You know, in the first 10 years of my practice from 1993 to 2003, about 90% of my law firm's revenue was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. And now that's nearly zero. And I look at that as a big success. And mm-hmm. But that took industry and government and consumers working together to deal with how to fix that problem. And we're starting to see some of that same collaboration in leafy greens, and that's a good thing. And I think we just need to continue to think positively and pay attention to details. And, you know, I think our food supply can be not only healthier, but safer. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for all of the work you've done in this area. I cannot recommend your two websites enough. That's marlerblog.com and foodsafetynews.com. Keep up with what's the latest happening with regard to Chipotle and other cases yet to come. So in closing, I want to thank you so much, Mr. Marler, for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again. Thank you.